This is the Ironside Podcast, number 72, with Tom Dinkelman and me, Brett Kane. Good evening, Tom. How you doing, buddy? Great to be here. The greatest honor of my life has been serving alongside the freedom-loving Americans of Army Special Operations, men and women like Nick Lavery, who willingly accept the most dangerous missions on behalf of the nation with daring determination. The storied legacy of the Green Berets was forged in battle by the deeds of these courageous warriors, and I will forever be grateful for their service. I've seen firsthand that freedom isn't free. It is paid for by the sacrifices of our country's finest sons and daughters. Every day, our cherished Gold Star families whose loved ones gave their lives for this nation inspire us with their grace and strength. We too owe much to our combat veterans who selflessly and repeatedly risk their lives for the mission and for their comrades in arms. Many return from war with visible or invisible injuries and the road to recovery can be daunting. But what our soldiers can do in the face of adversity is simply remarkable. When Nick lost his leg, he attacked rehabilitation as he would any mission with humility, hard work and tenacity. What's unique about Special Operations Forces is our ability to seize opportunity, even when it seems impossible to everyone else. Nick's approach was no exception. He never retreated. He just attacked in another direction. The key to America's success is the great talent of Americans who choose to serve. Nick is very special, and he remains one of Army Special Operations' most inspiring examples. The power of Nick's story is not found solely in his monumental achievements, which are extraordinary. It's in the simplicity of his process and his genuine desire to help his team teammates. Through his experience and an Army Special Operations trade secret or two, he shows you in Objective Secure how to conquer your impossible. And that right there is a, a brief introduction to the book, Objective Secure. And we are honored to have an American hero and the author of this book, Mr. Nick Lavery. Welcome aboard, brother. Hey, good to spend some time together, boys. I appreciate it. Well, it's an honor having you. I, I, I feel like I know you. I've just devoured this book and I've listened to you on so many other great shows. I, and when I'm reading this book, I read it in, in your voice. I hear your voice in my head. And <laughs> it's, it's really exciting to, to have you. And your story is so amazing. And it's, and it's in the book. Everyone's got to pick that up. And you've told your story so many different times. Do you... Do you ever get tired of, of telling the same story? Cause it's a great story. I can't imagine that you would, but I'm sure everyone's always asking you. I'll, I'll tell you, Brett, I just had this conversation with my business partner uh, just a couple of days ago, following a recent podcast that came out. And, you know, we look at each other through a very uh, fine lens and, and always looking to try to improve. And we're trying to find the, we're trying to find the areas in which we're messing things up because that's how we get better as a, as a team, as a business, as a brand, et cetera. And he came back. We were just talking about the, that, that episode. He's like, dude, you know, when you tell this story, which I've heard, this is him talking, which I've heard from you now, you know, a hundred or so different times, you still tell it with the same level of energy and enthusiasm as if you were telling it for the first time. And he's like, doesn't this, does that not get difficult for you? Like, how are you still, still telling the same thing over and over and over again uh, with that same level, level of energy, you know, and I'll just say like a, a kind of a comparison and a much kind of smaller scale as you think of, you know, musicians who get up on stage, you know, night after night after night and they, 
and they have to perform and they're, they're, there's paid attendees that are expecting a certain level of energy and performance. So there's, there's a professional aspect that I owe those that I serve, whether I'm on a particular platform like I am right now, and certainly your listeners, to, to absorb that in a way in which it deserves to be told to create that impact. Um, but also, you know, I, I can put myself back into those positions every time I'm talking through it. So, you know, although it's the same story several times, multiple times, it feels like I'm telling it for the first time because I just kind of relive it in real time. You know, I don't have a scripted response to the way that I'm saying it. So it still feels fresh and new. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't imagine that it'll become a point where I'm like, Oh, I really just don't want to tell the story again because I've seen the tangible effect that it can have beyond just the like, Holy hell, this is like amazing. It's blowing my mind, but the way to take that, those lessons learned through those lenses and through those experiences and then ram it into somebody's head so that they can actually apply something from that to their own lives. And that is what gets me fired up about doing it. So it's, uh, it's something I imagine I'll continue to do for years to come as long as I stay in this kind of public sector. So, I mean, yeah, no issue on my end, man. Well, that's, that's great to hear. Yeah, and as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about that because obviously now you know, we've got, your book, we've got a podcast and, and a video and all these things to record these stories. And I thought anciently, you know, the, the Druids or uh, the American Indians, they didn't have a, a written language. And mm -hmm. so it was an oral tradition. So of course they were telling these same stories over and over again. And, uh, and, and I think that's cool. And that's why I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. I, I did want to ask you something. So yeah, Story's incredible. Let's let's take it a little bit further back. So growing up, you, know, you got bullied severely. I, I mean, I think it's it's worse than than uh, what might be considered just you know kids being kids. Uh, but you, your parents were just incredible, and uh, they raised you. So I'd love to dial it back. And what what was growing up like? You know, I know you moved a lot. Yeah, man, you know, and I, I'm able to look back now with such an enormous level of appreciation for what at the time was really, really hot, because this is a great question, Brett, because oftentimes people are like, how? Yeah, but but like, how? How did you do? How do you do this? It's really difficult to comprehend, which I can appreciate. But this this question right here is deeply rooted within that, both the how and the why. So I'm able to look back with an appreciation for it because my, my level of resilience, my level of toughness began for me, you know, at the age of five and just continued all the way up until I became a young adult. And that was earned through a lot of fear and discomfort and pain and challenging times. I began building up this mental callousness to me because I had taken such I'll use the word abuse because it applies, but because I went through such trials as a young person, that's really how I began being molded into this tool of resilience. So I can see that now as a 40 year old, certainly at the time, you know, when you're seven, eight, nine, 12 years old and you're the new kid in school every year, I get picked on trying to maintain friendships that just they're gone because then I would move to a new location and kind of start all over again. 
It was absolutely difficult. I, I am not complaining. I do not accept sympathy. There are millions and millions and millions and millions at this point that have had things and are currently going through things far worse than what I experienced. But it certainly was challenging. Um, and I'll just close because you hit it and you said it perfectly. Um, you know, I come from an extraordinarily loving family. I have two parents that worked really, really hard to provide for me and my youngest sister. And they do what they had to do. And they were both stuck between doing what they had to do to put food on the table and keep a roof over our heads and also pursuing their own dreams and their own ambitions. And when you're a really young parent, you know, my father had me when he was 20, that can be really difficult to do. So I think back on, he and I have had some amazing conversations since where I'm like, dude, I, I am, I apologize for just my level of, 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 uh, of adolescentness and, uh, and the things that I complained to you about, you know, and, and I, I can see now how hard you and, and my mother were working to do what you needed to do. So even though it was really hard, I can see now the, the, the value in that and just the level of respect and appreciation I have for my parents and my youngest sister to be there to keep mentoring me and coaching me through these really hard times is, uh, is really tough to, to quantify. Well, and Nick, I would say, you know, as a parent, one of the hardest things to do in the world is to see your child hurt. I mean, watching them be bullied, whatever it is, to see your child hurt is one of the most difficult things. Uh, you said you went through, obviously, a lot of things as a kid. What would you say to the parents out there that are just trying their best to try and help their kids and what they can do for their kids that are hurting through some of those things? Oh, man, the parenting route. I love where your head's at, man. That's a, that's a phenomenal question. And as, as, a, as a somewhat newish parent, so my wife and I were the parents of a five-year-old and an 18-month-old. So although I've read and researched quite a bit, it still very much is a figure it out as you go kind of concept. My, I guess my advice would be, I, there's, a, there's an extraordinarily, I'm going to take an interesting route. I'll take a unique route to this because oftentimes with, when, once you become a parent, your kids become the number one priority in life, which is something I can absolutely respect and relate to. You want to give your kids the best of everything and you're willing to go to great lengths to do that. I will challenge parents out there, however, when I say that while that is true, I would argue that we have a responsibility to ourselves as well, and in some cases, in a, in a, in above and beyond that. Uh, because if we're not in a great place mentally, physically, stability-wise, emotionally, if we're a train wreck, you could, you could be the greatest tactician when it comes to parenting and that effect won't be there because we're in a, you're in a bad place as the parent. Um, and then to take it a step farther, I'll go down a real unique path. I've seen this a bunch where, where because we're parents, that becomes a, quote, justification for stagnation. It becomes the reason why we stop pursuing our own dreams and ambitions because we feel like we, we can't anymore. Like I just can't take that risk because I have kids, because I'm now a parent. Um, I'll just say that this isn't a dress rehearsal. And just because you have kids that uh, rely on you for just about everything, especially when they're young, 
I will still maintain that we have an obligation to make this gift of life one of both success and happiness irrelevant to how many kids we actually have or if we have them at all. So certainly easier said than done. And I know that because I live it, but I want to put this out there to parents out there that find themselves in a position professionally or geographically or whatever, and they just don't feel like they can make a move towards what their soul is pulling them towards. Yes, it's going to be that much more difficult because you still have to provide, but I would argue you have an obligation to yourself to figure it out and still strive in that direction. I love that because I find myself, I'm not, I'm guilty of this as well. As I look for those areas of stability because, and using the, my kids as an excuse or a reason. Same thing, I use the same thing with my life as well. I, I have to take the job that says, hey, this is the guaranteed salary. It's there because uh, it's going to take care of my family. And what it does, I think it squashes that risk. But my fear is, is what is that going to teach my children? Mm, great point. Because we're assuming risk one way or the other, right? I mean, you're either taking a risk. There's a risk of action. There's a risk of inaction. And there are hazards. And there's ways to mitigate those hazards. And then there's the potential effect of the opportunity with either direction. So there's risk regardless. Um, to your point, what kind of an example are you setting? Which, you know, these kids are like sponges, right? They see one thing, hear one thing, and it's just buried in their brain. Um, and then also for you personally, somewhat selfishly, which isn't something to be guilty of, it's easy to look at it and say, okay, I'll pursue that thing that I want most after my kids are taken care of. Like they're looking 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road. Like at that point, I'll pick it back up and it's never too late. I'll stick by that. But what does that next 18, 20 years look like? Is it just, are you living miserably for five days a week for a two day distraction for 20 or 30 years? Is that really living? Like, are you living life or is life living you? And I just see so often parents struggling with that and then and then using their parenthood as the excuse as you just said which is true there is a way yes it's really difficult but success combined with happiness is difficult for most people you just have to find you know the way to navigate through it i, I that's awesome you know and i it's it's kind of drifted into our vernacular we say the term dad bod you know oh, if you're a dad and then you're gonna you're gonna be kind of fat you're gonna be kind of getting out of shape but I mean, really a dad bod should be like you, Nick, that should be like the bare minimum that if you're a dad, you have to look like Nick uh, because you have to be strong. You have to, to be able to protect your family. You have to be able to play with your kids and eventually your grandkids. And, and it, it's so important. And that I love how you talk about in the book, how, you know, our, our mentality, our mental state and our, our physical well-being are so much more intimately connected than, than we give that credit for. You said uh, on a recent podcast that when you joined the army, you called your dad and said, Hey, this is what I'm doing. And your dad's like, no, you're not. And you said, you know, dad, I love you. You're my best friend. And I really, it was just, you know, just a little line, but I, I wanted to explore that. So did you always consider your dad, your best friend, or, and even when you were a teenager, or how did that come about to you as a young man? expressing that to your father yeah i think i think the my my father and i's friendship blossomed you know probably early 
early college years. So maybe you know, around the age of 21, 20, 21, 22 time frame. You know, my mother and my father split. Um, they divorced when I was a freshman, I believe. So that was certainly, and I'm just coming out of my kind of asshole teenager phase where I, my parents were awful, even though they absolutely were not, right? But this like rebellious kind of typical, stereotypical anyway, adolescent era that I went through. And then my parents split up and that was a real t- difficult time for us, the family dynamic. I'm in college. My sister's still living at the house, you know, two different homes. The, the, the standard kind of divorce challenges that happens when you're, when you're a kid. Um, but really on kind of the, on the backside of that and to be able to extract the positivity out of that as well, you know, I, I became a, a shoulder for my father to cry on. I became an asset for him um, as he navigated through that space and really struggled with it. So that was when I'd say probably our friendship really began to take off. And again, because we're so close in age, it's, it's, it's pretty easy. So I've considered my father to be, you know, he was my best friend when I was 10 and 14. I just didn't see it that way myself at the time. In reality, retrospectively, that was the case. I began seeing it as such probably around 20, 21 years old time frame. That's awesome. It's so cool. And you talked about you've got your five-year-old and 18-month-old. What what does the day-to-day look like? Because in the book, you talk about how we we really don't have time to waste. You know, we need to to have some some precision. But for for kids, you know, they've got nothing but time. You know, and they love to play and and are are distracted, which is a good thing. So, how do you mitigate time with family, time in the gym, time with work, time with business, and and all these other priorities? Yeah, it's, this is a great question, uh, which we could talk on for hours. I'll just say. I'll, I'll hit on two things that kind of are two opposing uh, perspectives or, or two ends of the spectrum. One is just being as deliberate and specific as possible with our programming, with our actual strategy, our day-to-day, our calendar, right? Like how am I segmenting my time within that calendar? And the more specific we get, um, the more efficient we get, right? If you talk about someone who's got things dialed into the minutes, and I've got some colleagues that, that I work alongside of outside of the military, that if I schedule a call with them, it'll be from, you know, 07 to 0717. And it almost looks like it's a typo when it comes through on kind of the alert, like, here's your meeting block. And I'll be like, hey, Jeff, you know, 717. He's like, yeah, because I got a thing at 720. I mean, so this is an example, right? Like the schedule is dialed into the minute. Um, at kind of the more extreme examples, I think something that's much more practical is probably hourly, right? So you have 24 to play with. How do you dice that up? And what's your level of discipline that you have to actually execute on that? So having a strategy in place with the, uh, the high, a high degree of detail that's also practical and can be executed on. And then the other end of that spectrum is needing to be flexible whether that's because of your kids or just because of this little thing called life that doesn't cooperate. You know, life doesn't play nice. Life is going to get in the way. Life is going to throw you off track. You're going to, things are going to happen whether or not you're a parent or not. Certainly when you have kids or a spouse, they've got things going on and you have to have a level of flexibility and adaptability 
to be able to move away from your super rigid schedule because in this moment, although I'm supposed to be in the gym in five minutes, I am deciding that this is a, an authentic priority over that. And as long as we're honest with ourselves about that and we don't stop making up excuses and lying to ourselves like, oh, no, you know, it looks like I got to watch Game of Thrones for the next three hours. Like, that's going to take priority over the gym. That gets easy to convince ourselves that this thing that kind of just happened is more important. But if we have a degree of self-awareness and honesty and can accurately prioritize those things in real time as life comes up and then just shift things around, then I think that that's a, that's a sustainable model. But what's, what's critical for that is getting back onto our track as soon as we can. And so often, man, I hear about Monday. I hear about Monday all the time. And I get it. It's the beginning of the week. It's like, I'll get back on track on Monday. I'll start the new diet or nutrition plan on Monday. I'll start the workout on Monday. Like Monday's the day that's almost programmed into our brains as the time to begin or the time to get back on track once we fall off the wagon. This knowing that most people will do that then provides an opportunity for us on a Wednesday when life throws a curveball and I got I get derailed for 12 hours. No, no, no. Getting back on track now is going to give me an advantage. It's going to allow me to make up time on the competition, whether that's external or I'm just competing with myself, or it's going to allow me to extend the lead because these circumstances happen to everybody. I don't care how disciplined you are how structured you are, life's going to throw you off track every now and then. And knowing that most will kick that can down the road to Monday opens up a window of opportunity for us to leverage now. So to summarize, having a, a practical and sustainable degree of strategy and structure executed with discipline, while also having a level of flexibility and adaptability to deal with when life throws you off track, but then having the grit and the willingness to get back on that course of action as soon as possible. That's incredible. I, what a phenomenal answer. And whenever my daughter, and, and she's just an angel, I, she's so good. But whenever she does get, you know, frustrated or, or um, you know, is, is kind of throwing a fit, I'll just tell her, I'm like, hey, you know, you can turn this around. You can change your attitude anytime you want. You can do it right now or right now or right now. Or right, yeah, and and pretty soon she's smiling and and you know uh, and turns it around and and I think that's something people don't realize is you really you don't have to wait and you don't have to start from from zero. In fact, it's it's better to not. I want to just add Brett real quick because this is a great point and I want to just double down real quick. You know, we have an expression in the military that no plan survives first contact, which means that. Although we've got this scheme of maneuver and this is where we're going to get dropped off, and this is where we're going to move and this is where we link up and this is the target and we're going to come in from east to west, north to south. We have all this stuff we spend hours, sometimes weeks or days planning. The minute bullets start flying at you, the plan goes out the window, right? Like no plan is sustainable beyond that because at that point you have to deal with all the variables that's coming at you. Even if, even if and when we plan for contingencies, we play the what if game, you are not going to account for everything, okay? So this is in terms of military operations and then getting into a gunfight, which a lot of people are like, well, 
that, well, that's not me. Well, yes, it is you because rather than bullets, now we're just talking about life. Rather than someone throwing a grenade at you, your five-year-old just fell off the back of the couch and cracked his head open. You got to go to the hospital. Like it's the same thing. We're just talking about two different environments. But the reason why we still plan anyway, knowing that is because it's a known point to return to, to then continue moving forward, right? So the planning is absolutely critical with a high degree of detail and, and contingencies for what could happen. But knowing that when the rounds start flying or when life gets in the way, we have to adapt to the environment within that time and space, but then we have a known point to reconvene, reconsolidate, and then continue moving forward. Well, and I think it's important to remember that it's not just those negatives that we have to adapt to. It's not just enemy, enemy fire. It's also friendly fire, meaning there's those moments in life that we need to adapt to that are fleeting, enjoyable moments that are organic. And if we don't recognize them right then and embrace them, we'll miss them. Wow. Well said, man. So true. I wanted to ask you, Nick, so we've talked a lot about the, these plans and, and these protocols and, and procedures. One of the, I don't want to say highlights because it's all been highlights, but, but one of the, the experiences in your military career that you've, you've talked about a lot uh, is when you got shot in the face and you did not follow procedure. And, and you talk about that a lot, but it, it seems like you did the right thing because you were able to uh, do And I'll let you tell that story because it's so good, but I'd, I'd love to hear it from the lens of even though you weren't necessarily doing exactly what you had been trained to do in this situation, uh, thank God it, it worked out, but it seemed to be the right thing in the moment and, and being adaptable, I think is so important. Yeah, man, that's a great question. It's a great point. I'll tell the quick version of the story is we're coming back from a mission. I was in the trail vehicle working out of a hatch so I could see up and around outside the vehicle. Our lead vehicle hit a massive IED. It just picked up this, this big military armored vehicle and just chucked it off the side of the road with six of my friends inside. And that was the initiation of a complex ambush. So boom, truck is airborne. It's decimated. And at the same moment, we start getting engaged with machine gun and, and RPGs and small arms fire. So we're in a full-blown ambush. And we have very specific standard operating procedures, we refer to as SOPs, to react to these scenarios. And we train on them constantly back in the States. And then we go forward and then we do it for real. And certainly during a deployment like this. So I had had countless repetitions and I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. I know what quote unquote right looks like in that moment. Um, but I don't do what I'm supposed to do, right? My, my concern for my friends superseded me doing my job. And I ended up just jumping out of the hatch, jumped off the roof of this truck while it was still moving. And I just took off in a dead sprint towards this downed vehicle that had my friends in it. And I came upon, I came upon some of my buddies that had been ejected from the vehicle. I came upon some enemy fighters that were moving in to finish off the guys. So I smoked the, the, those dudes. And then fortunately, I got there when I did because I was able to extract our team leader, our captain, out of the vehicle um, that was on fire. So I look back on this moment because it's, it's a really great point. I look back on this moment. And all of the guys lived, which is, which is good. Um, 
but I didn't do my job. Like I, I didn't do what, what I'm expected to do. So there's a reason why we train the way we do, right? It's like the same reason why we come up with a plan. This is the most efficient and effective way that we can come up with to handle this problem. And we do it that way for a reason. That said, just like along the lines of what we've been talking about, there are times in which life gets in the way or no plan survives first contact, choose your cliche or, or, an, or analogy, where we have to absorb the information that we're seeing at that point in time. And that equation, which is filled with a bunch of different variables, is now starting to move around. You're still trying to get to the same end state, the same results, but the game is changing as you're solving the problem. So I don't look back with what I did with any kind of regret, um, particularly with this, with, this, with this particular scenario, um, because I do believe if I had done what I was supposed to do, uh, some of my friends wouldn't be alive right now. Those, those dismounted enemy fighters that were moving up towards that truck could have very easily gotten there before any of us got there. So I'm glad I did what I did. However, we train a very particular way for a particular set of reasons. So there's no real quote, right answer, right? Like I made the decisions I made and so did the rest of my teammates in a wildly complex environment. We all played a role. The results were what they were. Um, and ones that we're, that we're happy with, at least after the explosion went off, um, I feel like we dealt with it the best way we could. So the ability to be flexible and adaptable um, is important. That just comes, however, with a lot of experience, exposure, and a certain level of expertise, right? To be able to gain that knowledge, to be able to, to, be able to start rapidly solving problems in real time, and then feeling a high degree of confidence to execute and not being stuck by you know paralysis by analysis, you know. So these things do take time to be able to to build up that level of rapid decision making under stress. Which fortunately, you know, during my time doing what I do, we we get exposed to a lot of that pretty quickly. I think that's awesome, and and you're so right because you, you really can't uh, have the luxury of improvising if you have not trained the SOPs day in and, and day out. And, and that's true uh, in the army. That's true in life. It's true in, in sports. You know, uh, Tom's a big baseball fan. So you guys will definitely have to connect on that. I know you've got some, some great sports stories and, and, and did you see this uh, you know, before the army at all, when you were playing football It's obviously your incredible football player as well. Did you ever make decisions that maybe weren't in line with your training, but did pay off? Oh, absolutely. It's a great analogy. I can, I can tie a football analogy to just about anything. So you just teed this up for me. I mean, as a, as a freshman, let's just look at college ball, which is wildly different than high school. So you get to college, you get, I get recruited. I'm on the team. I'm playing, you know, as a freshman, someone that has very minimal level of exposure, experience, and expertise in playing college-level football, my ability to, to adapt to, <clears throat> to these complex problems in real time was, was reduced because I'm still, I'm still green. I'm still new. I don't have the level of knowledge and expertise and experience to be able to make those decisions that fast. So if it, I, I, mean, I was an outside linebacker. If the play called for me to blitz off the corner. As a freshman, I was doing that no matter what was happening around me. It's like, okay, 
this is the play that's called. I'm going to come in off the defensive end's rear end, and I'm going after the quarterback, period. Like, very little decision-making at all would happen. Once I got to my, you know, third year playing ball, fourth year playing ball, and this is a legitimate example, plays called, Nick, blitz off the corner. I'm like, cool, roger that. Play gets going. I'm reading, I'm reading the field. I'm reading what's going on. Ball gets snapped. I go to blitz and realize it's a whole separate play that's going on. And I peel off of that to go drop into coverage and I end up with an interception. So like me as a freshman would have almost certainly not have done that because I'm just dialed into what I've been coached to do. As you get more senior and you start to see how the game's being played and you're consuming this knowledge and building up your, your level of expertise, it puts you in a position to make those decisions faster and then also having the confidence to execute on it once you once you're processing the information. Yeah, I love that. And and that's true. You know, my my background is in boxing and, and jujitsu, and, and you're obviously a, an extremely talented martial artist as well. And and that's what I say because you know, I'll, I'll be teaching some kids some stuff and, and they want to, you know, look like Floyd Mayweather. Who, who does a lot of things unconventionally and said, okay, you know, that's fine. But first, you know, you, this is how, this is, has to be your guard. This has to be how you throw your jab and then you can improvise later down the road. Um, wh- what are you doing right now with, with your family? Because, you know, I, I know your wife is super dialed in and, and super smart, super talented, but I'm sure she has a different schedule or, or a, a different mindset. And, and obviously your kids are going to be unique. So how do you, uh, as a husband and father lead the family without being rigid? Oof. That's a great question. And I, I'm in a, I'm in a phenomenal you know, position where my wife is also active duty on me as well. Uh, and she has lived and does live now a very up-tempo lifestyle, very, very, very similar to mine. So you, you, you bring up some really great points. Um, one is at times I have to recognize that I'm not the, the leader of my household. Um, if I'm in Afghanistan or Syria or Iraq or off somewhere training, I have, to, I have to be able to relinquish that control to someone who's actually there doing the job. And I know that can be a challenge for us. Um, I would say probably more so for men that want to have this, you know, this I'm the man of the house. And there's certainly some a lot of value behind that. I'm a bit of a traditionalist. Um, however, if you're not there, um, it's tough to do that. So having uh, a teammate in my wife that is more than capable to handle that and anything else, she's entirely independent, uh, facilitates me being able to do that a little easier. Um, so it just becomes kind of a back and forth between the two of us while I'm gone or she's gone or when we're both together at the same time, that's when it gets more interesting because we're both used to having repeatedly be like the, the parent or the household maintainer. And then when you put us both there at the same time, it's like, okay, who's doing what? Like, how are we, how are we managing this now as a unit now that, you know, our son used to be two and now he's five. Like there's a, there's a lot of different things now that are happening. So it's, it's kind of an, an, a fun roller coaster to ride, but having that level of communication, you know, with her and that trust that we have within each other, 
allows us to do it and still do what we do professionally at a very, very high level. So it's both a blessing and a curse because we speak the same language. We have very similar mentalities. We're both extremely ambitious personally as well as collectively. Um, but we both move around quite a bit. So it's a lot of times we're high-fiving each other as I'm coming home and she's heading out the door. So I'll look at that as a positive as well because that's only forced us to increase our communication, which is wildly important for any marriage dynamic. Um, and then also I'll just close by saying we've both been able to hone in on the fact that while we are reduced in quantity of time that we often have together, we then shift gears to the quality and we, we maximize that um, at every possible moment we have together and with our kids because the quantity is oftentimes low. And that's a challenge I'll throw out there to you guys and, and, and your listeners those that are struggling with time uh, balance between you know, work, hobbies, family, side hustle, personal health, all the things, when we struggle with quantity, because we all only have the same 24, I would shift gears and look at how we can increase the quality. I think it's awesome. You, I think you went from, and, and maybe they were all interchangeable. I, I felt, felt like they were when you said leader, teammate, unit, how they were all cohesive. And I, I think that's awesome that you, would, that you would put those into that. And my question would be is, is how do you maximize that, the, the quality that comes with the limited quantity? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a lot of times I'll, I'll use the kind of the family side of the house on this because we're on this topic. I think oftentimes, and I did this at first for a while, when I was thinking of quality time together, I was thinking about, you know, we had to go someplace magnificent, like the Disney World stuff, or like, let's go into the mountains and rent, and rent a cabin and go horseback riding. And like, it had to be this wildly new experience for us. And certainly those things have their place. I would argue, and I have seen within our own exertion of energy, within this space that quality is really nothing more than being in the moment at that time. And those of us with professions, those of us pursuing ambitions, which for many of us are two separate things. There's so many people out there that are doing what they need to do nine to five to put food on the table, but they, they're also pursuing what their actual passion and purpose in life is. And that becomes really difficult because again, there's only 24 to work with. When it's family time, it's family time, you know, like be in the moment. It doesn't matter if you're in Disney world or if I'm on the floor in my son's room playing Legos, I just have to be very deliberate about where is my mental bandwidth right now? Because if I'm on the floor playing Legos with one hand and the other hand, I got my phone out and I'm looking through emails, I'm checking socials, I'm texting, like he can pick up on that. He's five. He may not say, dad, put the phone down and play with me, but that's what he's feeling. So quality is, I think, nothing more than truly committing to that moment of time, being in the moment with your brain and your heart and your soul, um, knowing that it is of priority, otherwise it wouldn't be there at all. So by focusing on what we're doing at that time, doesn't mean that the other priorities don't matter to us. It just means that in this moment, this requires 100%. 
And unless there is a scud missile heading towards my house, I don't care what's going on at work. Work will be there tomorrow. Instagram will be there tomorrow. My emails will be there tomorrow. Right now, I'm playing Legos with my son. Is, is it even possible to have more than one priority at, at a time? I would say it's possible to have as many priorities as you determine you need to have at any given moment, and you could have 10 of them. I would argue that you can only truly focus on one thing at one time. And it's like shooting a rifle is an analogy I use. You know, really when shooting a rifle with iron sights, there are three things that need to be, your brain needs to be able to process. The target, the front sight post, and the rear sight posts. Well, to shoot accurately, you can only focus on the one thing, and that's the front sight post. The front sight post is going to be crystal clear. The target will be blurry. The rear sight post will be blurry. Everything in your periphery will be blurry because the brain can truly only actually focus on one thing at one time. And that's where it needs to be to be accurate in that moment. Multitasking is a very dangerous term because a lot of people can consider multitasking as I'm going to do a lot of different things at the same time. And there's countless case studies that have proven that if you try to do that, or if you do that, you're really just going to be executing marginally across multiple things rather than doing one thing pretty good and then moving to the next and the next and the next. So multitasking, when it's done efficiently, isn't about doing several tasks concurrently. It's the brain's ability to rapidly change focus from one thing to another. So focus, change, focus, change, focus, change. But you're still just focused on that one thing at that one time. So science is really in our corner here when we talk about can I – can I focus on more than one thing at once? You can certainly try, but you're just going to have multiple blurry visions rather than one that's clear that you're actually executing with the, with a certain degree of proficiency. Very well said. So when your, your wife, yeah, talk, let's talk about that courtship because it obviously came at a a very important time in your life because you were, I don't want to say convalescing because it was, it was a street fight the whole time, but she got to be bedside with, with you for a little bit. Right. Yeah. Our, uh, our typical, you know, the quote courting face for my wife and I was, was unorthodox to say it lightly. You know, she was, she was in Afghanistan uh, deployed when I was over there and when I got wounded. So she had a front row seat literally to, uh, what happened with me and you know she went through the the struggle of of if I was going to live or not we really weren't an item at that point you know we had known each other for a really long time we trained together we trained in the same MMA gym jiu-jitsu gym we worked together a little bit it was during that deployment even though we were in two separate locations that our relationship began to grow she became this support asset for me while I was off with the boys doing doing the stuff we were doing in the mountains so she had a front row seat to me getting wheeled in, you know, basically dead. And then I immediately end up at Walter Reed. She's still in Afghanistan. And then, you know, she gets home and she's visiting me at the hospital. You know, she's bedside there. I get to a point where I'm somewhat mobile. And then, you know, I drive down to North Carolina, spend the weekend down there with her. Then I'd go back to Walter Reed. She'd come visit me. So 
this was really the beginning of our relationship. So absolutely unorthodox, but it also set us up for success because she saw me at literally my worst, at my most vulnerable, at my weakest point. When most of us, especially guys, are trying to put on this facade, girls do it too, but it's part of that courting phase, right? You're putting on like the best version of yourself, the way you dress, the way you smell, how much money you spend for dinner, like all the things you're trying to make a good impression. It's only a matter of time before that curtain gets peeled back. And then the, you have to expose who you really are day to day to that other individual. And hopefully it still works. Sometimes it doesn't. And they're like, eh, what happened to all the roses and the two, you know, $200 lunches? It's like, yeah, that's not happening anymore. And then it's like, okay, cool. Let's go a separate direction. With Tony and I, my wife and I, you know, she saw me when I was at my most helpless um, and was not only okay with that, but she was like, hey, let's, let's like, let's figure this thing out. Like, let's go to work. Like, what can I do? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to help you here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to pull you in this direction. Um, so it was definitely an interesting time for, for both of us, but we both look back at it now just with such a degree of gratitude because it set us up with such a strong bond that we continue to leverage, you know, today. That's beautiful. I, I, I'm so impressed. I mean, it's, it's one of those miracles and not only your uh, recovery, but also your romance. And I'm so happy for you too. And, and your kiddos as well. Do you see your son? Is he kind of, I mean, is he more interested in, in football or does he like art or is he kind of a nice uh, blend between the two of you? I'd say now he's, He's a blend. He's definitely a blend. He's got my size. He's got my wife's attitude, which is fiery. Um, he does love artwork, which is more definitely more my wife. My wife's an actual artist and a musician. So he's, he's interested in that now. He was in jujitsu for a little bit. We got him in there and then he kind of phased out of that. He really wasn't into it, but he, he does like CrossFit and like gymnastics as well. So he does physical stuff. He's a physical savage. I mean, he runs around with his shirt off like a maniac, just looking to break things and, and hurt himself. So, but he's also got an artistic and a really sweet side to him as well, and a fiery, uh, edgy, hard shell exterior like my wife has. So he's uh, currently, that's where he's at, but it's, it's wild to see how they mold and shape and change over time. So, you know, in three years, it's, we'll see, uh, we'll see what he looks like at that point. Man. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Tom, he's got, uh, he's got three, uh, girls and, and I have my, my seven-year-old and it's funny because my wife is very musically inclined and, uh, she is, uh, super talented and my daughter's just a wizard on the piano and, and I'm not, mm -hmm. I, I, I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, uh, but she, she does like to fight and she loves guns. So I got her a, a nerf rifle cause she wants to go on patrol and, and, and that's, uh, so it is awesome. cool to see. Yeah. Awesome. I, you're such a good dad, man. I like, it's, it's awesome. You need to have like a million kids. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's the three, as the two of you, I'm sure can attest to it's, it's the hottest job I've ever had, which is, which is saying something, um, I've been put in some really difficult positions in some really austere environments. None of that compares to the difficulty of parenthood. Hands down the most challenging job I've ever had, but also the by far the most fulfilling. It's just an amazing ride. And being the guy that was going to be a bachelor for life 
And once I got into the military, it was all about being the best operator I could possibly be. And I was going to live this life of, you know, like Stallone and the expendables. Like that's the direction I was going in. That's all I cared about. I'm never getting, you know, no kids, like no, nothing. Just like this war. I was like, I'm putting this earth for this. And to see me now, as I couldn't imagine uh, not having, you know, my wife and not having kids, it's just wild how, you know, things change over time, man. Well, and I think that that's a really good because we, like we've talked about, you have to be able to adapt and you have to be able to, to figure out what is my mission. And, you know, you talk about how, how gifted Tony is, uh, but you also, I think, do have a lot of that right brain skill as well, because you're clearly a gifted writer and I, I hope you write way more, but what was that like? I know when you first decided to tell your story, it was just like a nine page Microsoft Word document. How did that develop into Objective Secure? Yeah. So, you know, the word doc came purely out of efficiency. And as I started getting more into the public space, the questions were coming in. How did you do what you did? How, 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 just at scale. And rather than just answering them one at a time, I said, I'm just going to put this down on paper and be able to just copy and paste and send it. So it was purely based off efficiency for me. I realized when I wrote that, that I learned a lot about myself and I was also giving people a better product rather than just thinking about it in real time. It was a much more thorough and analytical piece. And I just used it that way for several years. And then once I decided to write the book, which really was kickstarted by my now business partner, uh, I just, you know, I went back to that, to that model I had, which essentially became an outline for me to go off of. And I just began to dive deeper into the tenets and principles and values and tools and methodologies that are, were within that. I just began researching and thinking and reflecting and kind of just going down rabbit holes to just get more stuff on there that was practical, like no fluff, like let's make this lean and clean. But I just went deeper into these different character traits and after that, I got all the way to the end where I thought it was, it had all it needed to have without going overboard. Then I went back and started thinking about my personal examples. What was I doing in time when I realized the importance of focus we just talked about or structure or discipline or work ethic? Like, when did that apply to me during this journey? And I referenced my training log. I referenced my journals. I had conversations with teammates and family and friends and really went down this, this reflective road, which was kind of a wild ride to go on because I really hadn't done that prior. So writing this piece was, was really um, enlightening for me as the writer. I learned so much about myself as well as just these characteristics to, to live. And then... Um, Ultimately, just had to, you know, decide and be willing to assume the risk of, of putting yourself out there and, and exposing yourself and being vulnerable to, to the criticism and, and, the, and the pushback and the feedback. And, you know, when you, when you live in this world of, of being a quiet professional, uh, that became a struggle for me. It, and it still is. It probably always will be. But I've learned that, that there is a difference between being a quiet professional and a silent professional. And the feedback that I've gotten from those that have read the book uh, validates that 
my integrity is accurate, that my morals and values are accurate, because this isn't about me seeking the limelight. Like this is there to enable and inspire people that are struggling with something. And the proof is there, the data is there. So it was a wild ride to, uh, to create it. You say I'm a gifted writer. I would argue against that. This was more just like nugging it out, uh, knuckle dragger style. Like let's just dig in and just like get through <laughs> it and then have it edited to something that looks like it was written by someone who, who passed English literature one, which I don't think I did. <laughs> um, but, and, and I'll, lastly, I'll say Brett is, is I did learn while making myself do this, that I actually really do enjoy writing. So that was also eye opening. I'm currently working on another two projects now. So I've, I've, I've discovered a passion that I didn't know existed, which is, which is pretty cool, man. It's never too late. Amen to that. Tom, you look like you got a question. Yeah. I, I would love for you just to tell the story. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you're open to just telling about that day that you were wounded and what came about. Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking about the day where I got shot up, eventually lost my leg. Yeah. 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 Yeah, man. So we were on the tail end of our trip. So we had been in country about five, five and a half months uh, out of a six month deployment. And we were getting ready to go on a, a pretty large scale operation. And because of the size and the, and the complexity of the objective, we brought in some conventional Afghan security forces units that we sometimes worked with. So we were familiar with doing this. Uh, so we had some Afghan national police guys, some Afghan national army guys. We had some Afghan local police guys. And then we had our dedicated commando unit that were living with us. And we got done doing our final mission brief, which we had established an SOP, a standard operating procedure, where when these units would show up, they would all stay outside of our compound and the leadership would come in to our motor pool area and we would brief them on what we were going to go do. Then they would go out and then they would brief their units. And that was just to minimize how many people were around us in a very vulnerable position. Well, on this particular day, a Ford Ranger pickup truck drove into our compound. And I noticed it right away, as did the rest of us. And at the time, I was an 18 Bravo, which is the Special Forces Weapons Sergeants. And one of our responsibilities is that of base defense. So immediately, I know that this is a violation of our, of our standard operating procedure. And I find myself at a crossroads of whether or not I'm going to deal with it now, or I'm going to take the more diplomatic route and you know, my leadership will talk to their leadership after we're done with this thing and it'll get squashed. You know, it's easy to look back and go and like, like how could you possibly have not just dealt with it then and err on the side of security? Well, it becomes a little bit more of a difficult conversation and decision to make when, you, when you're a Green Beret because we make our money through relationships. Without that, SFODAs are not employed. We are, we are sent places to work with, locals. So the ability to establish and maintain rapport is, criti is, is critically important to us. I decide to wait and kind of err on the side of that. And again, you know, a certain level of complacency was certainly there, which happens when you've seen the quote, the wrong thing happen so many times, but there's really no negative effect to it. You can become conditioned and sensitized to these wrong acts that are happening in front of you. 
And I was certainly subject to that as well. As our mission brief ended, I began walking towards my vehicle, which was behind me. And then I heard rounds cracking off from behind me and I snapped my head around to see an Afghan national police officer that we had been working with jumped up on the back of that Ford Ranger pickup truck, which had a mounted PKM machine gun and just opened fire into the group. An incredibly vulnerable position that we were in, an ideal time for an attack like this. And that was the initiation to a, comp a complex ambush. So we started receiving rockets and machine gun fire from outside of our compound as well. Well, again, similar to the, to the IED incident, you know, I know what my job is in this, at this point in time. My job is to move to a piece of cover, which is something that stops bullets, move to cover and eliminate the threat. That is what I'm supposed to do. And similarly to what happened with the uh, IED, I saw a infantry soldier who was there with us who was frozen. And he was maybe six, seven feet in front of me, just staring at this machine gunner. And my love of a teammate and my protective instincts of a teammate superseded me doing my job. And I moved towards this soldier instead got in between him and the shooter. And that was when I was hit for the first time in the back of my, of my leg. And it knocked me down on top of this soldier. I, you know, a PKM is a devastating weapon, even at ranges of six, 700 meters at 15 feet that things like getting hit by a, by a train. So it literally knocked me over, knocked him over. I was laying on top of him, And that was when I felt another three or four impacts to my legs. So I knew I was hit. I ended up dragging myself and this kid um, about four, five, six feet behind a, a corner of a truck just to get a piece of cover and uh, grabbed a rifle that was laying on the ground, put that in action, took some horribly placed shots towards the shooter. And then one of my teammates came in and, uh, and smoked that dude. We're still dealing with, a, with an engagement, but I'm in no position to deal with any of that. So I move to check the status of this soldier. Uh, he's in shock, but there's no holes in him, so he's relatively fine. Then I go to check myself. I expose my leg, and my, my right leg is just absolutely hammered, ground-up meat. It looked like someone put my leg through a meat grinder or as if it was, you know, attacked by a shock. I mean, just ripped to shreds, exposed bone. I'm bleeding profusely, so I know my femoral artery had been cut which training tells me I have maybe 10 minutes to live before I'm totally drained out. So I go into my immediate course of action. I grab a tourniquet. I slap that on myself. I wrench it down. Bleeding doesn't stop. I grab a second tourniquet. I put that on myself, wrench it down. Ble bleeding seems to be slowing down a bit, but it's definitely still flowing. A teammate gets to me. He puts on a third tourniquet. Uh, he gets IV access for follow on blood or meds. And I'm, I, you know, I'm, I remember fighting him off because I knew I was going to die. I mean, I knew that my time was coming to an end and I didn't want him wasting precious seconds on a lost cause, right? Like we do triage when you've got these mass cal events. And I knew that I was in the expecting category. So I'm like, dude, get away from me, go help somebody else. I didn't know how many other guys were wounded, but I knew there were a lot of us that were down. He ignored me. He did what he needed to do. He worked to the end of his medical capacity. Uh, we said our goodbyes and then, and then he moved on because he had a lot of work he needed to do. 
And as I'm laying there, you know, I can still see blood seeping out one of the wounds. So I know time is getting real short. And, you know, I decide that there's at least one more thing I can do. So I grab some gauze out of my kit. I ball that up just to give it some density. I loosen up one of the tourniquets and I just ram this ball of gauze up inside my thigh, uh, reaching upwards towards my hip. And I'm trying to feel for the pulse of the femoral artery. And this is stuff that we do in training, but I certainly had never done it on myself before. And, you know, when you're losing that much blood, your blood starts to shunt inwards to protect your organs for as long as possible. So I have really zero dexterity in my hands. And now I'm scraping past broken bone. My femur had been shattered into 12 different pieces. So now the pain is really surging through me. And I'm trying to fight from going unconscious. You know, we talked about jujitsu. Like I was going to see the wizard. The, the lights were going out. Peripheral vision is going away. I'm like, come on, man. Just like stay in the game. Stay focused. You can find that. Find the artery. You can do it. I think I feel something. Really, I just got totally lucky. And I just rammed down as hot as I can with this gauze. I feed the rest on top of it. And then I lock the, uh, I lock the uh, tourniquet back in. And at that point in my time, my work there was, was pretty much done. I went unconscious. I came to about a minute or so later and realized that this was the end. Drug myself over, you know, six, seven feet to some of my teammates that were wounded. There were 12 U.S. casualties total this day, including three that were killed. So I drug myself over to where some of the guys were laying down and just decided I was going to spend, you know, whatever remaining moments I had left in life trying to comfort them. And, you know, I'm often asked, what's that like, uh, you know, laying on the battlefield, bleeding out, dying, you know, knowing you're going to die. What's, what's that like? And I didn't have any, uh, any, you know, near death experience type thing. I didn't see the light. I didn't hear any music. I just really saw flashes of, of my family. And, you know, I went through a quick wave of emotions where it began as a real high degree of frustration that after all the gunfights and all the explosions and all the things I'd been, been involved in over the years prior that I was going to be killed by a guy that I was training, a guy that I was working with. I mean, I literally taught that guy how to use the machine gun that he shot me and my friends with. So there was definitely a degree of frustration that was going on. Uh, and then I felt some guilt about what my, what my parents and my family were going to experience, you know, an envision of them getting, being handed the, the folded flag at Arlington and feeling pretty guilty about that. But also then this wave of, of content kind of came over me, both in terms of myself and my family, because I know that my family knows that as a warrior, someone who truly lives by that code, they would know that I died doing exactly what I wanted to be doing. So that kind of gave me a little bit of relief. And then the same effect I felt you know, against myself, where it was, you know, if I'm going down, I want it to be alongside my brothers in combat, and I'm okay with that. Um, obviously, that didn't happen, because I'm, you know, I'm here talking to you. So I got really lucky in a lot of ways. And in some other ways, I had the, the, uh, the competitiveness, <laughs> and the stubbornness that that wasn't going to be my day. Well, thank God you're still here, man. And 
And when you're talking like this whole, whole time, I just, the word I keep coming back to is, is selfless and, and you really are. And it, it's a really interesting, uh, you know, paradox and because you know, getting stronger physically, that seems like a, a selfish thing. It's like, oh, I could be spent time doing all these other things, but I need to get physically fit, you know, doing all, all these other things, but it's all for the purpose uh, of helping other people, even writing a book, you know, a lot of people might say, oh, well, that's, you know, there's some degree of um, self-service there, but, but not no, because all you're doing is thinking about other people, even at the absolute worst moment of your life, you're thinking about other people, your, your brothers, your, your family and, and comforting them. And, and it, it's amazing to see that level of awareness and willingness to sacrifice. So God bless you, man. I'm, I'm so glad that, that you're here and, and you had uh, some, some awesome people, you know, your surgeon was super intrepid and, and wanted to, to fight with you to save it more your leg than, than his team thought was, was possible. Uh, yeah. And, and you obviously had some, some people who were in your corner when you want to go to dive school with one leg, um, <laughs> which is just incredible. Yeah. So have you kind of seen yourself being in a position to help other people as well now? Cause obviously you've always been helping people, but those kind of key figures in your journey, uh, do you see yourself kind of in a similar position now as they were to you back then? Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and thanks to, you know, technology, which, you, you know, we're leveraging literally right now, the, the, uh, the ability to influence is no longer constrained by geographic location anymore. You know, the world has gotten really, really small and you're able to reach out and touch people far outside of your physical scope or reach. Um, and, you know, I have had the pleasure in being able to motivate, inspire, and enable my teammates, like 11 other guys that I work with every day when we're going to do the things that we do. And simply by virtue of me being there and them seeing what I'm going through, what I'm putting myself through to be able to live this privilege, which it is to do what we do and the effect that that has on them. It's, it's amazing to see that. It's incredibly humbling and it's an honor, um, but it also is something that I leverage as a leader. Because that's a, that's, a, that's a strength, that's a unique strength that I have that I can wield for positive influence. Um, so in like that small micro sense, it's there every day. And then, man, I just, you know, I got an email a few months ago from a woman whose husband had attempted suicide. And thankfully, he failed at that. And she said, you know, he was in a really bad place. He, um, it looked like he was going to do it again. We got him into some treatment, but it didn't look like it was helping. I saw one of your videos. I saw something. I saw that you wrote a book. I got it in front of him. We sat down and we read it together and he's doing a lot better. So thank you. And when you receive something as impactful as that, um, it has probably more an effect on me than it does on the, the end user. It's really difficult to quantify that and to put, you know, a, a time allocation against it. Like, was this, was this wasted time or wasted money or wasted energy? It's like, 
one message like that makes all of this worth it. Um, so to be able to receive things, feedback like that from the small scale to the, to the more larger version, um, and then kind of everything in between, it's just, uh, it, it's quite amazing. So thankfully I've gotten myself to a place mentally where I'm okay with being out there and doing things like this and writing and engaging with people, um, because it's purely based off of the effect that, that I'm able to have on, on, you know, on our society and on, on people that are struggling, man. So I look at it as a responsibility, as an obligation. And because I look at it through that lens, I'm able to do this alongside of my actual job, my actual, you know, my family obligations, my commitment to health. Like when you decide to look at something as a need rather than a should or a want, when you take some of these things and you put it at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you say, I will be physically fit. I need to be just as bad as I need oxygen and water and food. This is purely a mindset, right? This isn't, this isn't accurate scientifically, but you can choose to look at it that way. That ability to see it through that lens um, is critical to kind of bring this back to where we started to manage all these different things that are all really important. And you want to do all this stuff and I was only 24 hours in a day. I only have so much energy. I only have so much money. You decide to look at some of these initiatives as a requirement. The way I now look at enabling, inspiring people that I've never met, you find a way to, to get it done. And your story is so inspiring. People need to hear things like that. I would ask, I have another question about, actually about the recovery, not the physical recovery, but the mental and the emotional recovery. So I imagine you get asked about the physical quite a bit, but I, I'm curious how that felt, how you got through that, how you were able to overcome that. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of the focus is on the physical, which is understandable, whether it's because someone's looking at me as, you know, six foot six, 230 pound muscle dude with one leg. Like, how did you like build this? And, or, and then, or how did you go back to being a green beret on a team with one leg? Like physically, it just, it's difficult for people to wrap their heads around. I love getting into this side of the house because as challenging as things were physically, that paled in comparison to the mental struggle that I, I had to go through in the hospital and getting back to my unit and all the, the concern I had about being looked at as weak or, um, or as anything other than an asset. It was a really wild roller coaster ride. I will say though that I really didn't go down a negative path. Um, at any point. And I say this sensitively because it's not something I'm proud of because it's also not something to be ashamed of if that were to happen, right? I have worked alongside of some of the most elite warriors on the planet that have done some savagery in the name of their country and their teammates and have and are right now today, literally in a really dark, depressed, uh, unwell position. I can say with a degree of certainty that at least a reason or the reason why that didn't happen for me was because I was able to, to strap onto a vision of where I was going from the time I was in the intensive care unit. I knew that I was going back to my team and going back to my lifestyle. I hadn't a clue as to how I was going to do it, but that was the mission from the very beginning. 
So when things got really hard, which it did over and over and over again, physically or mentally, that was what brought me back. That was what I was able to focus on. Um, and then the second thing, or the last thing I'll say on this is uh, an acceptance of the fact that no matter how often I trained in the gym or how frequent I trained in the gym, I was never going to be as physically dominant as I was with two legs. That was a really difficult pill to swallow as, as someone that was, that considered my physicality, an enormous part of who I am as a person and why I was an asset on that team. Fortunately, I was able to get past that pretty quick. And then the way I was able to reinvest some of that was into some of these softer skills that we have within our community, the less sexier things. We all think about Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, Delta Forces, you know, jumping out of planes, kicking down doors, shooting bad guys in the face, blowing things up, like all the cool guy stuff, which we do. And most of us enjoy that. However, there's a whole host of other things that need to happen before any of the cool guy stuff can happen. So I saw that as an opportunity. If I reinvested time and energy into that, it would bridge the gap. It would, it would, I would be able to make up the difference in what I would lose physically to still be the asset that I needed to be. So that was a bit of a leap of faith because I wasn't, there was no certainty that that would play out. Uh, but it was a way for me to channel the struggle and invest that into a, a place of positivity and just continue to run with it. That's so powerful. And I, I love that because having that long-term goal, I think lends itself to being able to identify and stick to those short-term goals. You know, you knew you were going back to your team. Okay. What does that mean? Okay. That means I, I have to do this workout or I have to, you know, get out of bed at this time, you know, and I think that's just awesome. And I think that the, problem a lot of people run into is they have a huge disconnect between how these uh, short-term decisions impact or will affect or lead to their long-term goals. Very true. I, I wanted to read just a, a, another part of the book here real quick. Sacrifice is giving up something we are fortunate to have. Television, tasty food, a warm bed, fun with friends, Let's go even bigger because through sacrifice, we can gain two critical resources, time and money. Trade the car for a cheaper one. Maybe sell the car and take the bus. Donate the Xbox. Trade the house for a small apartment. No more eating out whatsoever. Let's just examine that last one for a minute. What is to be gained by punting on going out to dinner? How much time does it take to get, re get ready? How much time does it take to drive to and from the restaurant? How long does it take to eat? How much was the check? Quick math, I'm going to average this thing out at three hours and 75 bucks. Multiply that by the number of times we do this in a year. Now at the brunches, lunches, and whatever other reasons we go out to eat. How can we reinvest those resources? Sacrifice, the act of foregoing our privileges. Coupled with sacrifice is time management, or better put, time prioritization. Everybody has a problem with time. It is our most limited resource. I didn't have time. I ran out of time, blah, blah, blah. Check it out. The fact of the matter is this. We all have the same 24 hours in each day. The great simply spend their 24 hours wisely. They have the discipline to pass on that night at the club to put down their phone and spend time with their kids to get that assignment done in advance so they can read a chapter ahead. While the average are sleeping until 10 or 11, the greats are up at five or six. 
While the average are lost in television, the greats are reading and studying. While the average are eating a Big Mac, the greats are eating healthy foods. I, I really like that. And, you know, I was, I was just thinking because you're light years beyond where, where I am and, and you're exactly what, what I want to be. And I was thinking, man, I, there's nothing that I can even come close to remotely comparing myself to you, Nick. Uh, but when you said donate the Xbox, when I was 14, my parents got me an Xbox for, for Christmas and I realized it was not going to help me get in better shape. Uh, and so that spring I, I donated it to, uh, to my, uh, my coach's kids. And like, that was a, a really good decision that helped me a lot. So I would say to all of our listeners, you know, you look at Nick and you are just incredible. You're a, a hero. You are you know, larger than life. You're a Superman. Uh, and, and the people who, who might not have your physicality or experience, that's okay because there are so many little things that we can do every day to follow in yes. your footsteps. Yes, that, dude, you said that was that was beautifully said. It's so true, man. This really just boils down to a series of of micro choices that we all have every single day. And I think a lot of time people just kind of are drifting on autopilot and not even recognizing that moment to moment, every moment is an opportunity to pivot. You're at these different crossroads constantly where you can go left or right, you can do, and we just are automated, conditioned to doing what we're most comfortable doing and doing what we've been doing. And it's these tiny adjustments, man, tiny adjustments. Doesn't matter what you do for a living, doesn't matter how much you can bench press, like forget all that stuff. Forget the picture of me on top of a mountain in full kit with the beard and like the cool guy stuff. Like forget all that. Like that stuff happens by simply making different choices than what some others would normally make. It's by making unique decisions. Like most do what's comfortable. Most do what is safe. Most do what doesn't scare them. Most avoid pain and discomfort. But you, every time you have a chance that, yeah, well, what if I just take the risk on this one thing? What if I just take the risk on this one thing and just see what happens. And the amount of growth that can happen on the backside of that is amazing. And it's not only the effect of the, of the task, but what that does to our minds. And looking back, even if it's just 10 minutes in time going, man, that really scared the hell out of me, but I did it. And you know what? It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. What else scares me? What else can I do that I have this preconceived limitation of putting on myself? And you just do that over and over and over again with consistency. And then you, your, your greatest problem becomes you begin stalking fear and failure and discomfort because you know how much growth and wisdom is located there. You begin seeking these things out almost like a lunatic where now your greatest problem becomes you enter in the realm of reckless where it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa like, hold on a second. Like, let's get back on track. Like, this is why we have a strategy and this is why we do research and why we have a team to like keep us in the side of, of, of a controlled obsession versus reckless insanity, but that's a good problem to have. I would rather have to pull back the reins on somebody than have to kick them in the ass. So, you know, I, I bring this up because so often people make this excuse that, well, I'm not a green beret or I'm not six foot six, or I'm not, 
Like they look at me with this crazy superhero thing where in their minds, none of this stuff he's saying is applicable to me because I'm not him. And that is absolutely 100% bullshit. Stop lying to yourself. Like tell yourself the truth. It doesn't matter what you do for work, how tall you are, how big you are, how fast you can run, how popular you are, how you are with the ladies. Like forget all that. This is nothing more than seeing that there is opportunity within every single moment of every single day and that as time goes on we get that much closer to this ride being over and it's never coming back again so my challenge to your audience is knowing this isn't a dress rehearsal knowing that statistically the fact that we're alive right now is as close to the definition of a miracle as it gets why not just leave it all out on the field like what do you have to lose spoiler alert we're all gonna die so while we're here, while we've been given this gift of life, why not maximize it? Take the risk. Make sure it's somewhat calculated, right? Like in the, in the movie, The Other Guys, when they just jump off the roof and die. And you're like, well, that wasn't <laughs> So there are certainly times when fear and pain, you want to listen to them. However, there are times in which we want to ignore what our brain is saying, listen to our heart, be willing to take the risk, do the thing that scares us the most, do the thing, even though it's uncomfortable and do that in repetition and watch what happens. Literally the only limitations are the ones we place on ourselves. Amen. Thank you so much, Nick. It's just incredible. I loved what uh, General Baudet said in that introduction. One of the words that stood out to me was humility and hard work and tenacity. And I was like, okay, hard work, tenacity, that makes sense for, for your recovery. And and, and, and getting back. Um, but humility, I was like, wow, how did, how does that fit in? And, and you've exemplified that. Thank you for, for that reminder. Where, where can people find you? I know you, you mentioned the, the Instagram, obviously we got the book. How can people support the mission? Yeah, man. The easiest way is, is through our website, which is machinenick.com. It's got links to the book. It's got links to all the socials. There's links to all the nonprofits that I work with. So please check that out. And then there's ways to get a hold of me personally uh, for just, hey, man, I'm having a really bad day. Uh, can you help me out? I, I'm very deliberate about getting back to everybody. Oftentimes it can take you know a week or two, depending on the volume. But um, that's the one-stop shop for, uh, for connectivity or anything you guys may be interested in. Man, that's great. I, I love that. I, I, I see you are you know, the ultimate goal for, for everybody, you know, they say there's always a bigger fish. Uh, when, when I was in the guard, the, uh, some of the kids, cause I, I was older than most of the kids. They always called me captain America. Cause I was really smiling and I, I was, I was good physically. And then this other guy came in and he was like your size. And I was like, no, he's captain America. And then I see you and you're like bigger than him. And I think you are the biggest fish, you know, you're the, the ultimate, um, and it's, it's so cool to, to have you here. Is there anything else you, you'd like to say to our listeners before we sign off? I'll just say uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been a, a genuinely enjoying conversation to have. You guys took this down some unique roads, and I commend you on that. Uh, there are some really great podcasters and interviewers out there. Um, I've, I've spent time with many, and there are some horrible ones that I've also spent time with as well. Um, you guys took a unique approach. You're clearly... Uh, skilled at this. I'm not saying you're talented. You may be talented, but you guys have clearly put in the work to do this. I think that this this platform you guys have built is 
is a really cool kind of grassroots authentic initiative that you guys have going on here. So not only thank you for having me on to spend some time together, but thank you for tuning me into your platform and what you do. Cause I'm now a fan. So I'm looking forward to what you guys do in the future. And uh, let's circle back at, at, at another time and do it again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nick. Tom, you got anything else before we sign off? Nick, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your insight. We just appreciate the time. All right, boys. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nick. God bless you. And to all our listeners, get after it. Pick up this book, Objective Secure, and just believe in yourselves. You guys can absolutely make the sacrifices necessary to live your dreams. And, And Nick, thank you again for everything that you're doing, everything that you've done, and everything that you will yet do. And God bless you and God bless America. And until next time, this has been Nick and Tom and Brett out.